0: Our climate is fragile. At the rate we're burning fossil fuels and polluting the environment, the ice caps will soon disappear. Professor uh, Hall, our economy is every bit as fragile as the environment. Perhaps you should keep that in mind before making sensationalist claims. Well, the last chunk of ice that broke off was about the size of the state of Rhode Island. Some people might call that pretty sensational.
1: That's Dennis Quaid, playing a climate scientist who's arguing with the Vice President in a classic climate disaster movie called The Day After Tomorrow. In real life, we're not dealing with rogue icebergs the size of Rhode Island... yet. But in a book titled The New Climate War, climate scientist Michael Mann lays out what's at stake in the current battle against denialism and doomism. Greetings, Earthlings! I'm Alan Boyle, the mastermind behind Cosmic Log and one of your hosts for the Fiction Science Podcast, coming to you from the place where science and technology intersect with fiction and popular culture. Join me and my co-host, science fiction writer Dominica Fetaplace as we talk with Michael Mann about the roles that Joe Biden, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, and regular citizens like you and me can play in the real-life climate drama. For more than 20 years, Penn State's Michael Mann has been documenting the evidence that industrial activity is contributing significantly to rapid changes in global climate, including higher temperatures, deeper droughts, and more extreme weather events. In the new climate war... Mann argues that the political battle has reached a new stage, with parallels to other issues ranging from the war on big tobacco to the controversies that have been sparked by the coronavirus pandemic. That's where we started, when co-host Domenica Fedeplace and I connected with Michael Mann via Zoom. Thanks so much, Michael, for joining us on the Fiction Science Podcast. You've got the new book the new climate war. You've written several books in the past about the climate challenge. And so what's so new about this new climate war? It's been going on for a while, hasn't it?
0: Yeah, thanks, Alan. It's great to be with you. And, you know, there has been this long-term assault on the basic science of climate change by powerful vested interests, fossil fuel interests, and those advocating for them. Um, And I found myself on the front lines of of that war, that old climate war decades ago when we published the the now iconic hockey stick graph, and it became sort of a target for climate change contrarians and deniers. Um, Well, you know, we've reached the point where the impacts of climate change have become so obvious to the person on the street that it just isn't credible to deny that it's happening. And yet fossil fuel interests, the inactivists, as I call them, the forces of inaction, aren't ready to roll over. Uh, Every additional year we remain addicted to fossil fuels, they make billions of dollars of additional profits. And so uh, far from giving up, they've simply turned to a new array of tactics, um, what I call the new climate war, in their efforts to uh, prevent climate action. And we can talk about the details of of what those are. Um, But in short, uh, distraction, deflection, delay, uh, doom mongering, and division. Anything they can do to prevent us from taking action.
2: Um, You talk a lot about disinformation in your book. Uh, You describe a lot of different types. Inactivism, which you just mentioned. Also doomism, the notion that nothing can be done. And I thought it was really interesting. At one point you wrote, the truth is, if we took the disinformation campaign funded by the fossil fuel industry out of the equation, the climate problem would have been solved decades ago. So what can we do about disinformation?
0: Yeah, well, you know, it's it, it's an important point because those of us who come at this from sort of science communication standpoint, it's always bewildering, right? Our colleagues in cosmology and theoretical physics don't deal with it. Uh, what is, what's special about uh, climate science? The bottom line is the findings of science in this case have uh, found themselves on a collision course with these powerful uh, vested interests. And so there has been an effort on their part to discredit that science. In essence, we have to recognize that there's still sort of a, a small fringe out there who continue to deny the problem um, and they uh, promote uh, climate denialism, uh, they're increasingly irrelevant in the conversation. We're not going to win them over. Um, They come at it from an ideological point of view, not a science or logic or reason point of view. And nothing we do is likely to change their mind. So we have to move on and recognize that for the vast majority of the public, uh, they're not in denial of the science. Uh, there are a lot who I call find themselves in the vast confused middle where, you know, they have a sense that there is some skepticism. Um, They're sort of victims of that disinformation campaign. And that may have prevented them from taking action, from becoming motivated to really do something about the problem. So it is important to arm them with facts to make sure they understand the science and to debunk the denialist talking points that they may be prone to, um, but we shouldn't dwell on trying to win over the climate change deniers. Um, as we've seen with COVID, uh, denial, science denial, in a sense, what we've seen play out over the last year is almost an accelerated version of what has played out over decades with climate uh, change denial. And it's a denial of science that's inconvenient to powerful interests. In the case of COVID-19, the Trump administration, which, um, you know, was, uh, Opposed to the social distancing, um, lockdown policies, mask wearing, things that would they viewed as hurting their re-election uh, chances, and yet it, there's still that residual now movement um, because it has inertia to it, and so they have now sort of weaponized a large part of the public against taking common sense public health actions to deal with this crisis. Um, and so it gives us in essence some real insight into this longer-term uh, denial uh, problem, climate science denial. Uh, what we need to do is, of course, combat the misinformation and the disinformation, but recognize that for most people, they're pretty much on board. They just want to know what to do They want to know how we move forward, and that's why it is so important for us to talk about the path forward and definitely not fall victim to doom and despair, something that's actually been promoted by the inactivists, because they understand if they can lead environmental activists down this road of despair um, and doomism, it leads them to the same basic destination as outright denial. Um, the destination of inaction. And they don't care how you arrive at that destination. They just want you to to arrive there. And so we need to make sure that we combat ill-premised doomism. If we really were doomed, you know, if the science said that, then we would have to be upfront about that. But the science says the opposite. The science says there's still time to avert catastrophic warming.
1: So here we are at the transition administrations, and we're looking for the Biden administration, and it's going to be an interesting time. Uh, I know you've got a lot to say about that, and uh, one of the big issues is uh, how you proceed. Do you go slow? Do you build up incremental steps and try to get the Republicans behind you, or do you go fast, try to do as much as you can, try to power through? Uh, how would you advise the ad- administration to go forward on this? And, and what are the steps that we need to take, first of all, to avert catastrophe?
0: Yeah, thanks for that question. It, it's a great one. And, you know, the challenge, of course, was the book went to press in August. <laughs> so we had to <laughs> sort of project where we would be at this point. And we, we sort of threaded the needle pretty well there. Uh, what we envisioned in the book was that we would find ourselves in a more favorable political environment for climate action than we had been in uh, with the support at the executive level, a president who is in support of climate action, and as it turns out, actually campaigned on climate and has a mandate to to lead on climate, but also a a more favorable legislative environment. Um, That having been said, what we envisioned was uh, still a divided Congress. Um, And how could it be more divided than a 50-50 Senate uh, with a tie broken by the Democratic vice president? And what that means is that, at least for the foreseeable future, over the next two years or so, we probably can't expect to see something like a Green New Deal—a bold, sort of broadly, a broad, uh, broadly um, defined uh, social agenda-laden vision of climate action. Um, we're probably not going to see something like that pass this Congress, but we could see consensus climate legislation that involves mechanisms like carbon pricing where there's a bit of consensus from moderate conservatives as well as environmental progressives that there is a role for market mechanisms. Um, It's one of the tools in the toolbox, and we can't throw it out. Uh, We have to use all the tools that are available to us. And I talk about this in the book. Ironically, some of the opposition in recent years to market mechanisms has actually come from the environmental left uh, because it's sort of been framed as um, inconsistent with social justice, that the, that the, that the cost will somehow fall uh, on uh, disadvantaged um, frontline communities, those with the least resources. That definitely does not have to be the case. That depends on how that uh, carbon pricing is scheduled, how it is defined. In Australia, where they had carbon pricing until the conservative government got rid of it, and in Canada, which does have carbon pricing, turns out it's actually been uh, socially progressive, uh, we've actually seen an increase in uh, revenue coming back to the uh, lower income uh, uh, communities and individuals. So we need carbon pricing as one of the tools because we have to level the playing field um, so that renewable energy that's not degrading the planet can compete fairly against uh, fossil fuel energy. And that means we need demand-side measures to decrease demand, and that can be in the – we need a price signal. It can be in the form of carbon pricing. It can be subsidies for renewable energy. And we have some of that, $35 billion of that in this recent stimulus package. So we're actually seeing a little bit of climate uh, policy passing – Um, Congress in a a bipartisan manner. So I'm optimistic that we can see some real legislative progress, and that will complement a very bold executive uh, action approach where the incoming Biden administration is really viewing their mandate on climate very broadly, incorporating climate action into every single appointment, uh, every single cabinet, and every single department.
1: In your book, you briefly refer to Washington State's two carbon pricing initiatives, both of which failed at the polls. Uh, Should Washington try again? Uh, how, How should that campaign be tweaked if they do try again? Or is this too big now for cities and states to do on their own and we should look for national initiatives?
0: Yeah, um, I think both. <laughs> if that's a cop, I apologize for the cop-out answer. Um, you know, state action has been very important. Um, the West Coast states, Washington, is is still battling with, you know, their opponents there. And the politics of that have been very interesting because there's been some opposition from uh, the left. And it has to do a bit with that issue of uh, carbon pricing and, and social justice. And we need to iron that out. We have to make sure that, you know, the, these, um uh that carbon pricing is done in a socially just manner. And there are ways to do that. Um, So I think we need to continue. Look, the forces of inaction, the enactors are still aligned against action and they're using every weapon in their disposal to sabotage any effort um, to introduce climate legislation, including carbon pricing. We've seen that in Australia. We've seen that in Canada. But Canada um, prevailed nonetheless against that. Uh, France, we saw an effort by... Petro state Russia, which has been behind a lot of these efforts to sink carbon pricing because Putin sees uh, fossil fuels as their main asset. They even think they might benefit from global warming. And so they are one of the, the bad state actors that have worked to meddle in, in politics in other countries to prevent the passage of, of carbon pricing. But look, California is doing it. The West Coast states are in a consortium that is committed to doing it. Uh, our state, Pennsylvania, is now part of a Northeastern and Mid-Atlantic consortium, RGGI, um, that is, uh, that, that is implementing climate legislation, carbon pricing. So we need to pursue all of those state-level, local, municipal efforts, because that's how we actually made progress over the last four years. Even without federal uh, climate policy, even with a president who refused to lead, enough was happening at the municipal level, the state level, um, what companies were doing, their commitment to meet their our obligations, that we're going to come close to meeting our Paris obligations, even though we didn't have support for the last four years. Um, now, with an administration that is going to be aligned with those efforts, we can really hit the ground running.
1: I found it interesting in your book, you get on Bill Gates's case a little bit for mansplaining the climate issue and, and making the search for solutions sound more technologically challenged than it actually is. And uh, Bill has a climate book of his own coming out later this year. Have you had a chance to talk
0: with him about this, and, and how do you think he should revise his approach? Yeah, I haven't yet. I haven't seen, seen the book, um, but I have seen what he's written uh, over the last several years on climate, and and I do take him to task gently um, for sort of promoting this sort of uh, technophilic <laughs> view of uh, climate action, um, where it's all seen as just we need to encourage you know um, technological innovation and that'll right. solve the problem. Right, for us. and he,
1: he has his own uh, nuclear startup called TerraPower, and and you mentioned that nuclear is probably
0: not going to be a big part of the answer. It comes with environmental risks. It's not cost effective. You know, if you're a free market sort of conservative, you wouldn't be supporting nuclear because it requires huge government subsidies for it to be viable in the marketplace. Um, And it comes with obvious uh, potential liabilities, um, uh, whether it's uh, proliferation issues, um, weapons uh, issues or environmental um, threats like we've seen in recent years. Um, so, you know, and and he's supportive uh, and funds geoengineering research. And I think that's going down a very dangerous road. Uh, when we start interfering with this system, we don't understand perfectly the law of unintended consequences reigns supreme. So where I disagree with uh, Bill is that, no, I don't think we need a miracle, which what he said to solve this problem, the miracle is there when we look up in the sky, Um Uh, at the sun, when we feel the wind, um, geothermal, the solutions are there. It's a matter of the commitment, committing the resources to scaling them up. And there is credible academic research by leading scientists at at Berkeley and Stanford um, that demonstrate that we have the technology to do that. Existing technology now, we can meet 80% of projected global demand by 2030 from renewables, 100% by 2050. So let's just you know, uh, recognize that technological innovation, there will be increased efficiencies. We will do even better. We will have even better technologies. But meanwhile, let's move forward with the technologies we have because it is adequate. If you
1: had a few million dollars to start up a climate-related venture, where would you put your money?
0: I would say to, uh, you know, and it shows my bias as a science communicator. We're science communicators. Uh, we We all value The science, but we value the communication of that science to the public, and I would probably put it into into science communication, focusing on what I see as the remaining obstacles um, when it comes to scientists informing. The, the public discourse, because we do play a role. We shouldn't necessarily be dictating what the policies should be, that there's a worthy political debate to be had about that. But we need to sort of define the scientific ground rules, define what the objective evidence has to say about the risks that we face so that we have an honest political debate about solutions. I think I would spend it on that, on, on increasing that outreach between the scientific community, the communications world, And the policy and and public sphere.
1: Speaking of money, uh, what's your view on Jeff Bezos's climate pledge and the Earth Fund? Is is ten billion dollars enough, and is it being spent in the right way?
0: Yeah, so I have to uh, confess, I've had some conversations with his folks. So uh, you know, uh, full disclosure, I've had a little bit of input into those conversations. Hey, it's a start, you know. Hey, (laughs) um, would I like to see him sort of spend less? Uh, on you know, uh, sort of some of these uh, wackier you know, establishing space colonies, um, you know, and more on saving the one planet in the universe that we know that does support life. Um, yeah, I would like him to put more of his personal resources towards studying planet Earth and and the and the and and solving the crises that it faces. That having been said, I welcome his effort to play a constructive role. I welcome Bill Gates' efforts to play a constructive role, and, and I'll gently criticize these folks where I, I feel it's appropriate, but I do welcome these voices at the table because we need everyone on board. It's all hands on deck.
2: I love it that you would spend the money on science communication. We'd certainly apply for that grant if you're <laughs> ever put in charge of it.
0: If I were the czar, uh, uh, sadly, I'm not. I wasn't chosen to be climate <laughs> czar. Uh, John Kerry uh, and, uh,
2: um, and uh, um,
0: McCarthy will do an excellent job there, though. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Uh, so I, w- in the course of reading this book, I kind of realized how much like doomism had just pervaded my own thinking. Like I was expecting like a really depressing, heavy book. Uh, and, and there are aspects of it because that's p- a part of the reality, not the entire reality. Um, But this book also had moments of hope and had moments of optimism and looking forward. And it also had like science fiction references like sprinkled in like uh, Lord of the Rings and uh, The Matrix at one point. Um, We recently interviewed um, Ken Stanley Robinson. He wrote a new book, uh, The Ministry of the Future, which uh, is looking at this problem from a science fictional angle. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts on his work.
0: Yeah, I, 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 I do. And I'm th- I'm glad you asked about that. I actually did a short review for it in The Guardian. Uh, uh, I have to confess, I know the broad synopsis and I've read two thirds of the book. I'm still not at the end. So I, I don't know all the details of, of how it ends, but, but I, I love what I, I've seen. And I love what I know about the book, because what uh, Stan is doing here is taking on Sort of the, you know, the genre, the sort of dystopian uh, cli-fi genre that does portray this doom and gloom. That is a possible future. And we have to be frank about that. If we don't act on this problem, then, yeah, you know, I was just watching the uh, Soylent Green uh, again for the first time in years, 1973 film. And if you watch it, the, it's, it's incredibly prescient. Heck, Charlton Heston was an environmental visionary <laughs> um, because in Soylent Green, um, they're talking about how global warming has led to this dystopian future. They saw it even before there really was a scientific consensus. Um, so we have a lot to learn from science fiction. It, it's often been predictive in a profound way. And I think I like to think that Stan's sort of his vision is predictive, and his vision isn't dystopian, it's sober. It recognizes where we're at and the hardship that we will still have to endure. It's not going to be pretty, but he sees his way towards a more utopian future, a future where we do act. Um and in the, the in, in the process of doing so, we sort of revise society um in a way that's more just, not just more green, um, more democratic. Uh and so that, that, that is another po- uh, future that is possible. And which of these futures we get is entirely in our hands. And, and that's probably the most important message of my book is that this, this still is in our hands.
2: Uh, so we discussed your book mentions or the rings, the matrix, we just discussed Kim Stanley Robinson, any other uh, science fiction books or movie that you're a big fan of?
0: Well, um, in the uh, Final chapter, there are two epigraphs. Uh, one of them is Andy Dufresne from one of my favorite films, uh, Shawshank Redemption, um, and one of my favorite actors, Tim Robbins. You know, hope is a good thing. It's perhaps the best of things, um, and I'm paraphrasing it. But, but, but hope, uh, based on a sober assessment of the, you know, of where we are, is a good thing, and there are reasons to be hopeful. And in the closing chapter, I, I talk about those reasons. We've talked about some of them: the sort of favorable shift in our politics on this issue here in the United States, which I sort of foresaw and which is now realized formally in the last election. Um, the youth climate movement, which has recentered this effort, this this issue where it needs to be centered on our intergenerational obligation. When it comes to preserving this planet for future generations, just the, the the profound lessons that I think we are going to come away with uh, because of coronavirus, because of this other crisis. That we've faced. There's an even greater crisis that still looms. That's climate change, even when we get past coronavirus over the next year or so. And I think we've learned some lessons that will serve us well in combating this even greater crisis. So I think a whole bunch of things have come together um, in a way that 2020, while we will rightfully look back at it as one of the worst years, maybe the worst year we have faced in modern history, it may also be the year that we look at the year we look back at as where we turned the corner on climate. And and that's the message really of the book. Um, The only thing stopping us is our fear and our lack of um, imagination in confronting this crisis. You've talked about some
1: great examples of uh climate in fiction and and I think that's the first time I've heard Charlton Heston referred to as an environmental <laughs> visionary but is what, uh, is. <laughs> what what are the things that you wish you could correct about climate movies and books you know there's been all sorts of doomism type works of fiction out there what would you fix? And are there some plot twists that people have totally missed out on when they write about climate?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I'll tell you, Stan uh, is really, uh, as you read it, he gets it. He understands the science. He understands the intricacies of the science and the politics and the policy. So it's hard to do better than than he does in um, you know, in Mystery for uh, for the future. And I really recommend that book. I, I think it's a good companion from the fictional side to the nonfiction of uh, the new climate war. As I said, a lot of the, you know, Hollywood has given us these dystopian narratives about our potential future, and, and they are reasonably accurate depictions of worst-case scenarios. My only criticism is we need the, the other side of the story, the the, the the good futures that are still within our grasp, and, and there hasn't been enough about that because I think it's harder to peg um, in the context of a fast paced, uh, you know, blockbuster, um, you know, drama, uh, dramatic film. Uh, and so, you know, most films have to take shortcuts. Uh, the day after t- tomorrow accelerates the, the unfolding of climate change impacts by factors of 10. Uh, with my first year students every year here at Penn State, we watch that film, we go through it and we pick it apart where it gets the science wrong. For example, um, you know, descending, uh, plumes of air from the stratosphere would actually be very warm when they reach the surface because of adiabatic warming they wouldn't uh, they wouldn't uh, be cold uh, and there are lots of things uh, you know that you can pick apart but at the same time we've seen now you know one of the things that hollywood has gotten right is that climate change does now impact us in a real time manner it isn't just a far off threat polar bears in the arctic it's here and out, extreme weather disasters, unlike we've seen before. And yes, we can't say that weather system was caused by climate change. But we, what we can say is the extreme nature of that particular drought or heat wave or wildfire or flood or superstorm was exaggerated, exacerbated by climate change. We can now do that. We can even you know, do it's not perfect. And I'm a, I'm a critique of the fact that these attribution studies often under-attribute the role that climate change is playing because the models used are incomplete. They don't capture all the real world connections. But we can now say, you know, that climate change increased the likelihood of this particular event by a factor of 10 or 100 or 1,000 based on rigorous science. And so... You know science fiction has played an important role. Yeah, you can critique uh, the the details because they take shortcuts to, to to make it more dramatic, to make it play out in a real-time manner. but it's helped provide us with some imagination about what sorts of future could be in store if we don't act. I'd just like to see I'd like to see Stan's novel now turned into uh, a Hollywood blockbuster that presents that uh, that utopian future that's still within our grasp.
1: One of the big lessons from the book was about the role of individual action. And in order to get people to look away from what needs to really be done, they tend to distract folks by saying, well, here are the individual actions you can do to stop the climate uh, crisis where it's not really going to be enough. It really takes collective action. But what would you recommend that people do uh, when they listen to this and say, "Yeah, I want to do something about this crisis that's coming upon us"?
0: Yeah, thanks for for that question. Uh, I guess it's a really important message of the book. Um, the reality is, you need both. You know, and what is a collective, but <laughs> a group of individuals after all. Um, and there are things that we can do in our everyday lives that decrease our environmental uh, footprint, and they. You know, make us healthier and they save us money and they make us feel better. And they send a great example, set a great example for others. So, you know, we should do all those things. What we can allow is for the forces of inaction, the inactivists to convince us that that's the entire solution. We don't need regulation. We don't need policy. We don't need incentives, a price on carbon or subsidies for renewable energy. We just need you to be a better person, recycle um, and, you know, recycle, uh, and, uh, you know uh, become a vegan and, and don't try. don't don't fly anymore. Um, and I in the book, I sort of um, I tell this uh, cautionary tale. And, and I, I think, uh, Alan, it's, it's one you'll be familiar with Um uh, I'm not sure about Dominica. Uh, if you know this commercial I grew up with in the early 70s, the Crying Indian uh, advertisement, where it was this public service announcement in the early 1970s sponsored by the Ad Council, and it was about the pollution of our countryside by with cans and bottles, and it ends with this uh, Indian uh, Native American uh, You know, it looks like a chief who's, you know, he sees the strewn bottle and can litter on the roadside and uh, and there's a single tear that comes down his eye. And it, what it did is it was capturing the zeitgeist of the moment, the powerfulness of sort of Native American imagery at that time. There was real power and sort of the plight of our indigenous people and, um, and, and, and sort of the spiritual power um, that they carry with them. And this commercial was feeding on that. It was... And it made, you know, and it influenced a whole generation. Oh, isn't this, you know, it felt empowering. Like, hey, we can clean up this, this problem. We can solve this problem. Um, some environmental organizations signed on to it. They were co-sponsors until they realized pretty quickly that they'd been had. And we had all been had. It was a propaganda campaign hatched on Madison Avenue by Coca-Cola and the beverage industry who didn't want to see the passage of bottle bills in the States, like Massachusetts, where I grew up. Um, uh, It would hurt their bottom line. They would be responsible for the processing of, you know, the recycled and the reused uh, bottle and can waste, and it would hurt their profits. And so instead, they sabotaged those efforts, and meanwhile presented this public-facing campaign uh, that, hey, look, in in fact, the, the advertisement ended with the tagline, people cause pollution, only people can uh, clean it up or something close to that. And no, we don't need regulation. No, we don't need systemic solutions. We just need people to be better people. We need to send the Boy Scouts out to collect those bottles and cans and, hey, they can get some cash. Isn't that great? Um, well, you know, as a result of that, um, only 13 states passed bottle bills. We never got a national uh, bottle bill. Um there is now, as you guys might have read in the last few weeks, um, microplastics in mother's milk now um, at the bottom of the Marianas Trench in the ocean. Um, and that's thanks to a very effective deflection campaign by the beverage industry. And so it's a cautionary tale for what we're facing now in the climate battle, uh, the fossil fuel industry and those promoting uh, their efforts. And even mainstream media that have sort of, you know, once again, fallen victim to the disinformation have promoted personal action, individual action, almost to the exclusion of a a robust conversation about the needed systemic solutions. Even the New York Times, much of their climate messaging is focused on individual behavior. Um, So we have to recognize that. Yeah, sure, we should all do what we can individually, but we can't allow that to somehow be a substitute for our demand for policy action.
1: And in your book, uh, I think you referred to the role of public interest research groups, or PIRGs. Uh, I I think that was a formative experience in in your career. Uh, Uh, Is that the sort of uh, hybrid action, uh, kind of analogous to the indivisible movement in uh, politics that might make a difference?
0: Yeah, I, I think environmental groups, absolutely. Consumer environmental organizations, uh, uh, MassPerg was part of the public interest research group networks uh, by Ralph Nader um, uh, back in the early 1970s. And, you know, one of many groups, um, you know, environmental organizations, non-governmental organizations who, that are part of the larger sort of civic structure that we need to be in place to solve this problem. So it's individuals, it's organizations, civic groups that are willing to help not just communicate the message, but um, but engage our policymakers and engage the public working together with policymakers. It's an ecosystem, if you like, and all of those components are important. I tell the story, you know, that uh, it was a summer job for me after I was, um, Uh, after I graduated high school, uh, MassPerg, which had an office based in uh, Amherst, Massachusetts, where I grew up and was living, um, had these summer jobs where you could be a canvasser, going door to door and getting people to contribute to uh, MassPerg. And this was 1984, summer 84. It was a few years after uh, Massachusetts had finally passed a bottle bill, but only after it had been banged up and bruised by a brutal, industry-funded campaign that meant that it passed by the barest of margins and was unpopular with a large sector of the population so unpopular that despite the fact it was mass perks signature achievement was passing the bottle bill in Massachusetts as a canvasser a few years later 1984 I was told not to mention the bottle bill. <laughs> their signature achievement as I was canvassing in all but the most progressive communities because it had been banged up and bruised by an industry disinformation campaign. Instead, I was told to focus on the Lemon Law, which was a law Massburg helped pass to help you recover your money if you buy a, a bad used automobile. I thought that was very telling.
1: Wow, that points to some potential selling points for, for the climate challenge ahead do you think that uh, you'll be able to look back in your lifetime and say that we've turned the corner or
0: perhaps in Dominica's lifetime? I wouldn't be out there doing what I'm doing if I didn't think that that was a very real uh, possibility. Um, If I really believed the doom and gloom uh, outlook, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. I'm doing what I'm doing because I really do believe that we can solve the greatest challenge that we face as a civilization. And I feel blessed for lack of a better word, to be in a position to be influencing that conversation.
1: Well, we're blessed to have you with us today, Michael. Thank you so much for spending the time and and good luck with the book. I, I know it's going to be a success, The New Climate
0: War. Thank you. Thanks so much to both of you. I really enjoyed the conversation. I hope it's just the beginning. I hope we have a chance to talk more in the future. Amen.
2: Yeah, thank you so much.
1: To learn more about Michael Mann and his ideas, with links to information about the New Climate War and his other books, check out the Cosmic Log posting at FictionScienceClub.com. If you dig down a little bit, you'll also find our interview with Kim Stanley Robinson, author of The Ministry for the Future. While you're online, check out DominicaFetaPlace.com. Don't worry about the spelling. You can follow the link from Cosmic Log. I'd like to thank Michael and Public Affairs Books for the interview, and thank James Emley for his rendition of the Cosmic Log theme, which was composed by yours truly. Please subscribe to the Fiction Science Podcast, and feel free to give us a stellar rating on your favorite podcast channel. Until next time, this is Alan Boyle advising you to watch the skies.